Today on the Sunshine Economy, the head of the regional Federal Reserve Bank on the state of the economy. There's still a lot of uncertainty. There's still a lot of precariousness. And the need for more stimulus from the federal government. We are in a precarious position and many workers who have payments but aren't seeing the same levels of income are going to have to make some hard choices if we don't have uh, that relief package support behind them. I'm Tom Hudson. Today, Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta President Raphael Bostic about the state of the economy, the uneven rebound, and race in the American economy. We have collectively been much more visible and forward in talking about race and more specifically how our difficulties with race and and structural racism are really holding back the economy. It's all ahead after the news. Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public radio. Today on the program, a wide-ranging interview with the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, Raphael Bostic. Florida is in the bank's district. The Federal Reserve has taken unprecedented steps to help the American economy avoid a deep and long-lasting economic depression. It has cut its target interest rate to zero. It has pledged to keep it there for a good long time. It has acted to buy hundreds of billions of dollars of all kinds of bonds to encourage banks to loan out money. And the Fed has been more vocal regarding race and the economy. The central bank also has been very clear in its hopes that Congress and President Donald Trump forge another economic stimulus package. There have been on and off talks about what a new deal could bring, but there has been no agreement on how much and how to spend any new stimulus money. This is where we began our conversation with Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic when we spoke last week. President Bostic, welcome back to the Sunshine Economy. Does the economy need more stimulus from the federal government? As I go around and talk to people in the field, in my district, you know, what I hear from a lot of folks is that there's still a lot of uncertainty. There's still a lot of precariousness. Uh, and many places and many sectors are not seeing a lot of recovery right now. I was telling someone the other day that, you know, in Atlanta, uh, foreclosure filings are now higher than they were a year ago, which suggests that uh, there is still a lot of stress out there. And that some support might really be helpful and warranted. I know the Federal Reserve doesn't want to be prescriptive to Congress and the president regarding the kinds of stimulus, but knowing what the negotiations have been about, knowing what previous rounds of stimulus have looked like, would something that rhymes with what we've seen before, stimulus checks and and other kinds of incentives, be the same kind of stimulus that you would like to see? Well, I, I think there's a good case to be made that the stimulus should be targeted at the places and the, the parts of the economy that are struggling. The first round was really, let's just get a, get a blanket support out there. Uh, we don't know how this is going to play out. And we'd rather err on the side of being too forward in relief than, than too soft, just to make sure that we don't miss anyone. I think the experience over the last five or six months has made it clear that there are some parts of the economy that are performing uh, relatively strongly. Uh, and probably if there are ways to target so that uh, relief goes most directly to those places and those communities and, and those workers who uh, are not in that strength position, um, that's probably ideal. And there's a lot of data that's showing uh, what's happening in terms of how the economy is proceeding. 
So I think that that's how I would approach it in thinking about what relief might look like. Some of the weakest parts of the economy remain hospitality and retail, two significant contributors to the South Florida economy, as you know. How could those parts of the job market be targeted with any kind of stimulus from Congress? First, we do know from a lot of people's filings uh, who's working in hospitality, who's working in um, restaurants and the like. And with that regard, you could imagine that there would be some sort of support where if a worker or a family identified that there was significant loss associated uh, with uh, loss of income in those sectors, uh, you might be able to target that way. Uh, on the other hand, we know where there are businesses that are seeing stress. And so there may be ways to provide direct support, maybe a PPP type program targeted at restaurants and hotels. A paycheck protection program type program. Exactly. I'm sorry. You know, I always yell at myself for using <laughs> acronyms and I just fell right into it. Uh, and, and then, you know, the other part, which I think is important for many uh, of these weak sectors, uh, they don't own the properties that they're located in. And so to the extent that their landlords need to get their income because they have payments to, uh, there may be a role for some sort of a landlord relief program to make sure that uh, that doesn't trigger the closing of businesses, which then would in turn potentially trigger a bunch of commercial uh, foreclosures. And so, so that's how you know I'm thinking about ways that we might actually get to see some more targeted support that could make a difference. President Bostic, has the economic recovery stalled here late in 2020? So the evidence that I see and the data that, I, that I'm looking at is that it is slowing. But the most important part of this economic experience is that the recovery has not been the same for everyone. And that's been true almost from the beginning. So when you say stalled, it almost suggests that it's been robust for all the sectors of the economy. And, and that really hasn't been the case. Now, there are many communities and many neighborhoods, uh, many of them in South Florida, that continue to see stress and haven't really felt that things have gotten appreciably better in the, the most recent months um, with, without the relief. So I think those places are continuing their difficult experiences. And then in other sectors, I do think that the relief has played a huge role. And with the expiration of it, that has led to a lot of uncertainty and a lot of concern about uh, what future prospects might look like. It's an important acknowledgement about uh, how this economic recovery has uh, manifested itself in much different ways uh, based upon really income level, industry, uh, labor participation, just as the deep recession and the quick recession uh, left uh, a lot of people damaged and left others really unscathed. This recession was really unlike what recessions typically look like, where much of the job loss happens in the, the thick middle of the economy, people with middle skill jobs, uh, middle wage jobs. This recession has been uh, far more heavily concentrated uh, in low wage jobs and low skilled positions. And those are the jobs and those are the families who are actually the least able to be resilient. And that describes a very important part of every labor market, but a significant part of the South Florida labor market with traditionally our lower uh, average wages and concentration in hospitality and retail for those jobs. So 
as we're moving into the second half of the year of the pandemic, in other words, we're, we're well beyond six months into this pandemic, what's the longer term structural risk that you are beginning to perhaps be concerned about? When this pandemic started, we asked businesses and did surveys, really asking people uh, what they expected, how long they expected this to last. And the reaction in March and April was, so this will be done by September. We'll be good to go. Now, it's clearly not done. We're in October, and I think everyone has started to realize that this is going to last a lot longer than they might have thought otherwise. And so they're starting to rethink their business plans and rethink what sustainable uh, practices will be, both in terms of levels of labor that they need, the number of workers that they need, as well as what kind of capital improvements. And so I'm increasingly hearing from business leaders um, from pretty much every sector that they're rethinking everything. How should we think about technology and the ability for people to work remotely? How should we think about doing business remotely? I, I was talking with some hospitals who have ramped up considerably the amount of telehealth that they're using to engage with their, their patients. Uh, and that changes the needs for the physical space. It changes the needs for the number of workers. The more that this happens, the longer this goes, the more I think we're going to see companies lean into it. Say the restaurant sector, I've heard for many, many months uh, that there was a belief that restaurants were oversaturated. There were too many of them. But people believed that the, the transition would happen in a gradual way and there would be a slow sifting out. Uh, the longer that this goes, I think the, the more speed we're going to see in that sifting out. And then we'll see more permanent uh, and lasting disruptions and change in terms of uh, potential and the capacity of some of these sectors. We are still seeing some big announced layoffs in the Florida region. Disney announcing several thousand layoffs in Central Florida. American Airlines, the uh, predominant passenger carrier in South Florida, is talking about several thousand layoffs as well. What's the priority of needs to help the Florida economy? So that's an interesting question. The first need to help the Florida economy, I think, is to get the virus under control. And the one thing that I try to remind people when I talk about sort of how the economy is working and where it's going or, or might go is that this is first and foremost a public health crisis. And if we don't get the public health part in order, uh, it's very hard to imagine how the rest of the economy is going to just rebound because uh, you're going to have consumers who are going to be afraid to go to stores uh, for fear of uh, contracting something and bringing it back to their families. You're going to have uh, business leaders who are going to be reluctant to invest over longer periods of time because there's so much uncertainty about what demand for products is going to be. You're going to see uh, sectors that were perhaps precarious before, you get even more so, and you might see a creating of demand and a loss of jobs. And you'll also see, and I think this is, gets to sort of what you were talking about in raising this question, a lot of the stuff that businesses did that they thought might be temporary change actually transitioning to more permanent loss. And I think these layoffs are a recognition, they represent a recognition by business leaders that um, it's going to be very difficult just to mark time and that they're going to have to start making some more dramatic and drastic decisions about how they're going to run their businesses. And that's what we're seeing. 
92,000 fewer people in the Miami metropolitan area, Palm Beach, Broward, Miami-Dade County, in the labor force. 92,000 fewer people considered themselves part of the labor force in August of this year compared to a year ago. And there were a quarter of a million fewer people working. What are the chances of that turning into long-term unemployment, of that really taking hold? Well, I think that the chances uh, increase uh, the longer this goes and with the absence of support and relief um, that allows businesses to forbear and allows families to, to forbear as well. So to me, I, I really, I stay laser focused on what's happening with the virus, how it's pr- proceeding, hoping that people uh, stay vigilant in terms of following the advice of public health professionals because those are the ways that we start to find a new, a new normal of how to do commerce and how to engage in, in, in our communities uh, with the virus while we are still waiting for uh, a vaccine or some other type of um, medical response that can deal with this. So to me, that's kind of where we have to be. And you know, I'm hopeful that, that leaders in Washington do understand that without that support, there are going to be parts of the economy that are going to really struggle to recover. And that will in turn mean that our full recovery will take just that much longer to occur. Speaking with the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, Raphael Bostic, Florida is in the bank's district. Now, still to come, the conversation continues, the housing market and the pandemic. The longer that we go without having those supports, I think the more likely it is that that we will start to see uh, a little breakdown in these housing markets. Welcome back to the Sunshine Economy here on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. The housing market has held up during the pandemic and even gained strength here in South Florida despite unemployment shooting up. Still, about 1 in 12 South Floridians are behind on their rent or mortgage or worry they will fall behind next month, according to Census Bureau data. Housing is where we pick up our conversation with Atlanta Federal Reserve President Raphael Bostic. Florida is in his district. We spoke last week. There have been local and state moratoriums on evictions. Uh, The Centers for Disease Control has put a federal moratorium on evictions. Banks had been encouraged to provide forbearance or runways for homeowners and others who may have trouble making some of their mortgage payments in the springtime. Some of those programs are expiring. Uh, Tell us how you are viewing the the housing market particularly and whether or not it is any more or less vulnerable to falling victim to this pandemic the housing market uh, to date has done uh, remarkably well uh, i think a lot of the the efforts early on to encourage lenders to work with their their borrowers and homeowners uh, has been uh, quite successful and i actually think the the lack of foreclosures and actually until relatively recently, the lack of even delinquencies suggests that a lot of the relief packages and the relief programs that were put forward actually did a quite, a, quite a nice job and were successful. The longer that we go without having those, those supports, I think the more likely it is that, that we will start to see uh, a little breakdown in these housing markets. I, I, I got to say, I've been 
um, pretty vocal to say, you know, one of my goals is try to, to try to make sure that this recession um, does not have the same impact from a housing market perspective as the last one did, which, as you know, was driven to in large part by developments in the housing sector. I think we've done well so far, but we are in a precarious position. And many uh, workers who um, have payments but aren't seeing the same levels of income are going to have to make some hard choices if we don't have uh, that relief package uh, support behind them. From a federal stimulus, what about on the banking side, the arena where the Federal Reserve operates? What's the message to the lenders, to the banks that are that made these residential home loans? Maybe they still hold them on their balance sheets. Maybe they don't. But the banks are the ones who are running point uh, with some of these homeowners who may be struggling to make those payments. So I think the most important things to, to note in this regard are, are one, coming out of the Great Recession, uh, had banks be far better capitalized uh, than they were going into the, this period. So um, they were, banks more broadly have been pretty strong and not, not really in a position where there was a, a, a tremendous amount of urgency to, uh, to collect on these mortgages. Uh, the second thing I would say is we as regulators have told the banks that we understand that the, the decisions they're making are being made in emergency context, and we won't punish them or penalize them if there is stress that derives from these. Uh, and I'm hopeful that that gives them some additional comfort that they can continue to work with their uh, borrowers as much as they possibly can until we get a sense of how this is all going to shake out and whether there's recovery. You know, one of the things I think is actually advantageous in the mortgage space, which is probably more difficult in the rental space, is that for many of these mortgages, a restructure might actually mean just pushing out payments uh, further into the future. Whereas in the rental space, eviction uh, forbearance uh, doesn't stop the clock on what's actually due. Uh, and so when forbearance is over, there is a concern that I have that uh, landlords are going to ask for large lump sums of payments back, and they're going to be amounts that borrowers and renters just won't have. Uh, and so we're, we may just be delaying uh, evictions as opposed to stopping them uh, outright. South Florida residential home prices have been strong. Single-family home prices in Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach counties were up more than 12% year-over-year in August. Uh, record low borrowing rates have certainly helped. Do you think that the 0% interest rate set by the Federal Reserve's Open Market Committee is contributing at all to real estate inflation or even a real estate bubble in South Florida? So I, I'm just, I think it's a little early to be talking about a bubble. Uh, I do think certainly low interest rates are something that borrowers pay attention to and are aware of when they start making decisions on uh, whether to buy a, a home or not. I think uh, another piece to this, though, is that because of how the pandemic has played out, many people with relatively high wages are still uh, pretty secure in their jobs and uh, ha have been uh, a bit more confident to uh, make some major purchases and engage that way. So I think it's that combination of the low rates for sure but also the fact that there are a number of families out there who, who are flush with cash and are seeing this as a good opportunity to, to get into the ownership market or perhaps trade up. And it 
risks widening the wealth gap, doesn't it? Sure. It absolutely does. And um, this is a concern. You know, this issue about disparate uh, economic experiences in, in the U.S. and the wealth uh, inequality and inequities that we see, the, the virus and the pandemic is exacerbating this in so many different ways. And, and you know, this is one of them. This is not the only one. You know, I think about uh, what's happening with uh, many minority businesses. First of all, they serve minority communities, which have been hit harder by the virus directly. But then, because of, for, for sometimes historical reasons, they have smaller buffers so that their ability to weather shortfalls and difficulties is actually lower than you might see in other instances. So, you know, there, I think there, there was a Federal Reserve report out that came out that said 41% of black-owned businesses are expected to shutter outright because of the, the pandemic, which is twice the rate that we see for white-owned businesses. So I, I actually think this is a real issue and is something that will reverberate through for years to come. That has to have you losing sleep, doesn't it, President Bostic? Oh, absolutely. That is tremendous economic devastation for certainly those individuals involved with those companies, the vendors, and the community in which they operate in. Oh, no, it, this is, a, this is a, a big deal, and it's a source of concern. And it's one reason why I and why us in the, in the Federal Reserve System have been talking about this and trying to, to focus on this. Uh, you know, Chair Powell just recently talked about... Chairman Jerome Powell of the Federal Reserve. Yes, um, he recently just uh, gave some testimony... Uh, where he basically said, look, if we don't see some kind of relief, there are going to be tragic losses in communities that really were going into this, just starting to feel uh, some of the benefits of our, our record expansion, and that we all had an interest in trying to make sure that did not become the overarching narrative of, of what uh, COVID has meant for the U.S. economy. That's Atlanta Federal Reserve President Raphael Bostic. Now still to come with our conversation, race and the American economy. You know, we have collectively been much more visible and forward in talking about race and more specifically um, how our difficulties with race and, and structural racism are really holding back the economy. We're back on the Sunshine Economy. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening to WLRN. In June, as protests over the killing of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer were held in many cities across the country, including here in South Florida, Raphael Bostic took an unusual step. Bostic is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, one of the 12 regional central banks. The Atlanta district includes Florida. Bostic wrote and published an essay not on interest rates or arcane banking regulations, but what he called, quote, a moral and economic imperative to end racism. We spoke with Bostic last week. How have the calls for racial and social justice this year influenced the role of the Federal Reserve? In two ways. One is that folks at the Fed had been talking about this for a, a while, and, but much of it had been behind the scenes and not so public. I think what's happened in uh, the last you know, several months is that you know, we have collectively been much more visible and forward in talking about race and, and more specifically um, how 
our difficulties with race and, and structural racism are really holding back the economy. In many regards, a lot of the conversation around race has had a moral element to it, and that's actually valid. But I also think it's important to under, for people to understand that this is costing us collectively from an economic perspective as well. And by being out and forward with this, I think we've been able to take a leadership role in helping businesses and communities really try to grapple with that and think about ways they, they might contribute to unlocking the chains and the other aspects that have kept uh, racial minorities from fully participating in the economy. Share with us the evolution of this conversation inside the Federal Reserve. One of the knocks of the central bank is that it's an opaque institution, um, that uh, a group of folks get together every six weeks inside a closed room and decide uh, kind of what the sense of the economy is and what they want to do with the cost of capital, the cost of cash through Mm -hmm. the interest rate. The evolution of this conversation, as you described it, from behind the scenes, lots of talk about race and the economy, to something that's more visible. How have you experienced that? You know, we have a, uh, a distributed system. As you know, we have 12 reserve banks. We have seven governors in D.C. What's happened, because the events over the summer have occurred in so many different places, uh, each of us has had to face that reality in our district. So, you know, I'm in the 6th District. Georgia has had a number of events throughout the Southeast. There's been a long history of challenges in this regard. And we each have taken actions. And, and on some level, it's been a collective move without a coordinated perspective to start. We kind of were all getting those messages and started picking them up and then collectively starting to engage. Say, yes, this is actually something we need to be talking about, particularly now. Uh, and we can use our shared language to gain some comfort on this. The essay that you wrote and distributed, it was in June after the demonstrations and protests sparked by the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis primarily. You wrote that the Federal Reserve, quote, can play an important role in helping to reduce racial inequalities and bring about a more inclusive economy. What are specific actions that the central bank can take? Well, I think one is around how we execute and implement monetary policy. You know, we just finished a review of our our strategies and goals. And one of the things that came out of this was a re-articulation and rethinking of what maximum employment is and thinking about maximum employment from a far more expansive and inclusive perspective. So be mindful about, you know, who has participated in, who's benefited in, and maybe think about who hasn't and be maybe more reluctant to uh, take aggressive and preact- proactive and preemptive steps to uh, slow down an economy uh, that we think might be at risk of overheating before we actually see any evidence of that. So I think that's one thing. Let me pause there for a moment, President Boston, sure. if I may interrupt you, because that to me sounds very significant. The Federal Reserve has a congressional dual mandate. One is uh, yes. steady prices, a.k.a. controlling inflation, and the second is full employment. Nine months ago, there was a big debate about what full employment is. Is it below 5% unemployment, 3% unemployment? Uh, and now that 
that calculation and conversation has changed considerably because of the pandemic. But what I'm hearing from you here, and correct me if I'm wrong, if my interpretation is wrong, is that going forward, uh, the Federal Reserve is going to have a much more nuanced conversation and analysis regarding employment, that it won't just be necessarily national unemployment across the board, all races, all ages, all industries, but maybe look more narrowly at demographics. Is that fair to say in terms of, of what you're telling me? I wouldn't say it exactly like that. First of all, when I, when I talk about the employment mandate, I actually say we, we're looking for maximum sustainable employment. So we want employment that is, uh, once you get it, people are going to be able to keep that employment for an extended period of time. And what we've seen uh, historically is that when you have a fast series of business cycles, a lot of fluctuation in the economy, uh, that sustainability doesn't happen. And then the people who get the jobs last are the ones who lose their jobs first. And so we wind up with uh, far more volatility in communities and far more disruption. And those tend to be in lower income and minority communities uh, by and large. Historically, what the Fed has tried to do is preemptively stop that kind of fluctuation from happening. Uh, so when there was a sense that we might be getting close to full employment, the Fed would start raising rates, even when there wasn't necessarily evidence in the data to suggest that inflation was coming and that there was some kind of overheating. The way I think about the new mandate is that we're going to let evidence tell us when overheating is starting to happen and then act aggressively at that point. So we won't be preemptive. We will actually uh, be informed by what uh, the lived experience is and try as much as possible to let the economy go and let it grow because it's those last few months and that last period of growth where inclusive participation in, in the U.S. economy uh, happens greatest. When you're talking about the change mandate, I think you're referring to the Federal Reserve announcing that it was comfortable with inflation moving higher than 2% for a while as it tries to encourage and stoke economic activity. Yeah, so uh, this is another one where I would say it a little differently in the sense that I actually never viewed the mandate as a ceiling. For me, the mandate and the target was a target. And I never had a sense that we were going to be so precise in how we execute uh, our policies that we would have that control down to the tenth of a percent of inflation. For me, the bigger issue uh, has always been to what extent does that overshooting put us on a trajectory where overheating becomes more likely. And if we can prevent that, uh, then I think we're in good shape. We're deep in the weeds talking about the minutia of monetary policy. Yes. I know, and I want to, uh, but but at the base of this is that public conversation that race has uh, has played over the last six months, certainly, and as you discussed, uh, behind the scenes conversation that had been robust within the central bank for a good long time, becoming more visible now, and you have been one of those that has led that charge. So back to how this influences Federal Reserve policy, what role does race play as the Fed moves forward in this pandemic economy and assesses the economic data coming in? I think these are data points that there's a chance that people might consider differently and, and more intensively. 
but you know we have such a complex and large economy uh you know there are a lot of data points um that we need to be thinking about and taking seriously so for me that's kind of how i'm approaching this uh, let me say one other thing you asked about ways that we might be making a difference yes specific actions um you know one thing that we have started doing is we're starting to have conversations with different players in the economy about things they might do and how they might contribute to making progress in reducing racial inequities and ensuring that we have uh, more equal access to opportunity. And then one last thing I would say on that is that you know, I personally have, in, in Atlanta and through the Southeast, been in more conversations with business leaders just about what we're doing at, the, at our bank to promote racial equity and for our workers and for our, our local communities. Uh, and talk about things bu- individual businesses can do to make a difference in this space, to be aware of what they might be doing that is a barrier to racial equity, and to, to think hard about how we all can collectively point in the same way, in the point, same direction, to reduce those barriers and to see opportunity, real opportunity, get to people who have not gotten it nearly enough. More of our conversation with Atlanta Federal Reserve President Raphael Bostic still to come, finding lasting change. One of the things that we've got to commit to, if we're really going to see progress on this, is a, a willingness and a, a sustained energy that will inform how we approach this. We're back on the Sunshine Economy. I'm Tom Hudson. Today, our conversation with Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta President Raphael Bostic. He has been one of the Fed's leading voices regarding race and the economy. We spoke last week. One of the realities is that the inequities that we are uh, focusing on today didn't arise in you know, a weekend or in even in a quarter. You know, these are things that have taken a long time to sort of manifest themselves. And so they'll take a long time to uh, resolve. And one of the things that we've got to commit to, if we're really going to see progress on this, is a, a willingness and a, a sustained energy that will inform how we approach this. And I'm wondering how you at the Federal Reserve thinks about this moment, particularly at the intersection of this reckoning along with the pandemic economy. You know, when I talk about minority communities, this is not just the African-American community. In Atlanta, and I know in South Florida, the Latino community has borne a significant brunt on this. So this is actually a a more general issue that you should know we understand and I understand as I think about this. The likelihood um, that we will be able to just go back to where we were and not have to face any transitions, I think is relatively low as this crisis has extended and expanded, what has become clear is that some pretty significant things might be in train. And if that's the case, then it's incumbent on all of us to be thinking a bit more proactively about how do we leverage that change uh, to actually take us to even a a greater place. And that will be our collective challenge uh, to recognize what changes are happening and then find ways to leverage that to increase the amount of inclusion and inclusivity in our economy. As one of the chief financial regulators in the nation, does the Federal Reserve do enough to root out and address racist or unequal financing practices? 
the way you ask the question is a hard one. Um, <laughs> and you're a professional, I understand. And so are um, you, sir. Yes. Yes. So what I would say is you know, we do a lot. And as a system, uh, we are very committed to identifying uh, issues where there may be um, our racial uh, impacts and trying to, to stomp them out. To the extent that there are any that still exist, that suggests there's more work to be done. Do they still exist in your estimation? Um, I think there are there they they do. You know, there are cases that still come forward, you know, on a fairly regular basis on these issues. I think the way that they play out uh, might be a bit differently in today's economy, but I don't think we're post-racial in terms of of uh, practices and impacts of practices. How do they manifest themselves. Uh, uh, I would hope there's no longer maps of neighborhoods with red lines on them for banks. I have not seen one, a map like that in quite some time outside of in history books, which is a good thing. But there are subtle things. So, you know, when I was at HUD, we would do housing and urban development. I, you know, I ran a group there in the Office of Policy Development and Research uh, that did a, a once a decade survey where we would put people in the field and we would. Uh, have them apply for a home, they call a realtor or a broker or a lender, and they would be paired tests. And so it would be the exact same information that would be in an email or in a letter. Uh, and the only thing that would change would be perhaps a name. And you try to set up the name so that you'd signal that someone was Latino or Asian or African American. And then the other one would be sort of a more European name and see how treatment plays out. And what we saw was that the speed at which people got responses to their emails differed according to their name. The type of information that they would get when those emails were sent would differ. So there, there is more subtle than you might expect than, than what we saw in the past. But there is evidence out there that there are these biases that do shape and uh, suggest that people's experiences are not the same. And that's the direct function of who they are and what their background is. Speaking with Atlanta Federal Reserve President Raphael Bostic, Florida is in his district. Now still to come, catching up with a banker, baker and bartender as they navigate this pandemic economy. People are going to sleep better when they get that notice from their bank that your loan was forgiven. If I'm a smart, balanced human being, I should actually take a couple of days off because it's been a lot of work. I'm definitely pinching pennies, but I'm getting through it. Welcome back to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening and supporting public radio. It has been an eventful October so far for the banker, baker, and bartender we've been following each week as they deal with the pandemic economy. Keisha Scott probably has experienced the most change. She was tending bar at an Italian restaurant in Boynton Beach a few weeks ago when Governor Ron DeSantis announced the state was in Phase 3, allowing bars and restaurants to fully reopen. That was about two weeks ago. It's been a little worse (laughs) than before. I think with opening at full capacity, it's done two things. It's either kept people that were coming in because of the distancing away because they're afraid of too many people. And it's bringing in people that 
just really have absolutely no awareness for others. <laughs> now, all of a sudden, it's kind of like a free-for-all. And, you know, people are just thinking, oh, 100% capacity, that means that it's back to normal, and it's not. So when you have the mask on and you're trying to speak with people and it's just hard to for them to hear you, you know, on top of the music and the wind and all the things. And like, for instance, I had a guest at the bar and he could not hear anything I was asking him. So I just slightly pulled my mask away from my mouth so he could hear me. And he yelled at me to put my mask on, but I never moved the mask from my face. I just pulled it so he could, you know, hear and and then you have other people that are like, take your mask off. I want to see your face. So it's like, <laughs> there's no win. <laughs> On one side of it, you're trying to be aware of like a very, you know, real virus that has done some really bad things. And on the other hand, it just, it's so political and it just makes it that much harder and almost, almost a hostile environment at the end of the day. You know, I have no choice but to keep good spirits about it because- I can't go in with a different attitude or else I really won't make any money. I just feel like it's just very political. Everything has, this whole thing has just, especially with the mask, it's just different. It's, it's just very difficult. I'm in a, I'm in a, in Palm Beach County where there's a lot of support for the current president and, you know, with the things that just recently happened, like, you know, with him being in the hospital, that's kind of just, it, it, it didn't even flip the switch, honestly. <laughs> it's the same people. So I don't, I just feel like regardless of what the outcome is, it's going to be a thing where, cool, you don't need your, your mask to work, you know, or you don't need your mask for, for this, or it's, it's, it's really just, if it's in the air, it's in the air. If you can take your mask off as soon as you take a seat at a table or a seat at the bar, then what is the difference behind me working <laughs> behind the bar? I just hope that it gets better. I'm positive. I'm optimistic that it, that it will, you know, there's always going to be somebody, but it's, it's, uh, we're all kind of on pins and needles at the moment. All the bills that I've had moving here were based on a salary that I no longer have and the bills don't change. So I'm kind of, I'm scraping. I'm definitely pinching pennies, but I'm getting through it. <laughs> Keisha Scott tends bar at a restaurant in Boynton Beach. She said, even though it's fully reopened, her tips have not recovered. She works full shifts this week, but gets the weekend off. She's excited because she's a big Gators football fan. Banker Ginger Martin finally got some news last week that she'd been waiting for. News she's hopeful will help some small and medium-sized companies she works with at the bank she leads, American National Bank in Fort Lauderdale. Thursday night, uh, something happened with the Small Business Administration, SBA. I woke up to it Friday morning. Uh, first email I saw, they finally approved a lower limit on the PPP loans, the payroll protection program loans, that if you have a loan 50000 or under, you're going to have a very simplified, you know, application. Um, you know, there was discussion that that cutoff was going to be 150. And uh, they ended up lowering it to the 50000 but it's still going to benefit so many of our, you know, customers. In fact, I tell you what, first thing I did Friday morning was uh, say, okay, how many loans of, of our 500 loans do we have that were under 50000 for PPP? And that's uh, around 240, 250. So it's almost half of them. And the other good news that happened is that we see that the SBA has finally 
taken some of these PPP loans off of pending status that have been submitted for approval and they've accepted the application. So that means at least it's moving down the, the pipe for forgiveness. I think that people are going to sleep better when they get that notice from their bank that your loan was forgiven. You do not have to pay you know, it back. Because right now, uh, it's still, you know, it, it was just a promise. I mean, it was an expectation, but I think customers are going, you know, they, they, they're ready to have that forgiveness stamp put on it, right? And to put that behind them and to feel like they're done so they can go on to other things. And, you know, until we get all these loans processed for forgiveness, that still becomes a big thing on my to-do list, you know, my team's to-do list. Um, so it's, it's, it's completion, like um, closure look at where we are right now so you figure we've entered that fourth quarter so you start tying loose ends up and you start thinking you start doing your strategic planning your budgeting for 2021. you know what we've seen a lot of people will do deals at the end of the year and whether it's for tax planning you know reasons or or it just takes them you know a while to uh you know get things uh, you know, approved or whatever. And so we'll have a busy, we'll have a busy, I think, fourth quarter from an activity standpoint. That's American National Bank CEO Ginger Martin. She said among the loans they made last week was for a family-owned construction materials company to buy its own building and stop renting. 18 months of work came to a head over the past two weeks for Pilar Guzman Zavala. She co-owns and runs Half Moon Empanadas, and she launched a rebranding strategy as she looks to grow into new markets like frozen foods and more outlets. It was a great um, uh, beginning of the month. Uh, we uh, finally launched the new brand uh, that we had been working for 14 months in the design of it. And then the last month, it's been uh, working on the execution um, of the changing the the stores and um, and the website and everything that goes into branding. Um, so it was lots of hours of work and a lot of stress. And we finally had the party, like the launch party on Saturday, uh, where we gave out uh, free empanadas in our um, Ventanita on 79 and Biscayne uh, location. It was really great. Did it live up to my expectations? Uh, yes, everything except the website. I have to be honest. <laughs> um, I am very pleased with the result of the of the mural. We we built a, a huge, you know, sort of new mural in the kitchen. We had an artist from Mexico design it, and then somebody from Venezuela here in Miami to actually paint it. So that is gorgeous, and I'm very pleased with with that. Uh, the website it looks really nice. It's not executed right. It is working. You can place orders, uh, but it's not 100% like for me it should be. I know we spent a lot of money for these circumstances to change everything. Maybe, you know, if I were to put a number now, I don't know, over 25,000, I would think. So the operations, the day-to-day operations of the company, that has to be enough to cover for the day-to-day. Right. So I'm not putting any money into the operations and the investment is coming from our own you know, profit from last year. So our, the, the whole money that the company produced is what we're investing. The twenty five thousand that I told you, it's only on the actual painting the mural, changing the brand, like the actual, you know, um, changing stuff. But the brand developing the brand was, you know, 
four times that, you know, and that was money that we put out of our, our pocket, our, you know, profit for the company, because we believe that that's the way to grow, you know, reinvesting in the company. If I'm a smart, balanced human being, I should actually take a couple of days off uh, because it's been a lot of work. Next week, let me think, well, we need to focus on perfection in the, the website. And I am actually focusing again on the on the frozen component. So the shipping across the country component, um, we have two projects that are, you know, that we're working on with two different entities um, to be able to sell empanadas in different markets. And I will continue to search for locations. We're also expanding in Miami. So we're looking in Coral Gables, Sunset, Brico. So continue to do that research and it's it's literally me going with with my broker to see locations so that takes time it's a lot of things pilar guzman zavala with half moon empanadas the baker of our baker banker bartender trio we're following week to week here on the sunshine economy as they navigate through the pandemic economy you can follow us on twitter at wlrn look for a podcast of this program on your podcast app and hit subscribe Joe Johnson is our technical director. Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening.